Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and American dreamer driving down the road of true knowledge, Elisa Quitney. And I'm story expert who does not murder for profit, Lonnie Diane Rich. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Lost Hearts, episode 10 from Netflix's The Sandman, season 1. Lost Hearts was written by Vanessa Benton and directed by Louise Hooper. I brought you into this world to serve humanity, not to feed upon it. Time to wake up. Lost Hearts begins in a hotel room where the Corinthian convinces Rose that she and Jed are safer staying put. If she leaves, Dreams Raven can find her. Whenever she falls asleep in Dreams, Morpheus can find her. And he does not intend to help her, the Corinthian reveals. She can have both room keys and decide whether to let the Marquis serial killer back inside. What could possibly go wrong? Then the Corinthian goes off to give his speech to the adoring crowd of serial killers. Stuck on your own, doing your best in a solitary profession without any recognition? Well, the Corinthian sees you and admires you. But somewhere in his speech, the sexy nightmare puts his audience under. And as they dream their idiosyncratic dreams of mayhem, the Dream King himself appears in the room. You disappoint me, Corinthian, he says. You are my masterpiece, a dark mirror made to reflect everything humanity will not confront. Nailed it, the Corinthian claims. But Morpheus sees the Corinthian as infecting others with your joy of death and just something else for people to be afraid of. But when Morpheus raises his hand to unmake the Corinthian, the nightmare raises his knife and threatens his maker. A knife against a dream? You don't think a dream can die? Shockingly, the knife cuts Dream's hand. How is this possible? Rose is dreaming and tearing down the walls between dreams, which means that she is now caught in a maze of serial killers' sadistic fantasies. As she and Jed stand caught between serial killers, the Corinthian calls out, I'm trying to keep you alive here, and the Sandman counters with, I'm trying to keep your world alive. But Rose is choosing her own path. She puts the walls back and wakes herself, leaving the Corinthian and Dream to confront each other. Do you know why I do it? asks the Nightmare. To taste what it is to be human. He accuses Dream of not caring about humans, only about his rules. I contain the entire collective unconscious, Dream responds. Without rules, it would consume me. As he unmakes his nightmare, the Corinthian has one final barb. I'm only sorry I won't be around to see Rose do the same to you. Picking up the only remnant of the nightmare, a tiny, tooth-eyed skull, Dream regards him with Hamlet-like regret. Next time I make you, you will not be so flawed and petty, little Dream. Then, the Dream King curses the audience with self-awareness of their selfishness and cowardice, of their cruelty and monstrousness, and sends them off to turn themselves in, or to kill themselves, or to live in torment. Rose and Jed drive off into the night only to receive a call from Lyda. She is in labor, and Hal, Zelda, and Chantal, and Barbie and Ken are all taking her to the hospital. Joining her friends, Rose feels hopeful about her future and her ability to fight the Dream King. But once she is asleep, her dream pulls in all her friends. Barbie, dressed as a princess in an epic fantasy with a talking beast named Martin Tenbones. Ken, cheating with a sexy nurse. Chantal and Zelda, rescuing each other with gothic tales. And even Jed, back to his fantasy of being a superhero Sandman. Then Rose's dream becomes a whirlwind that sucks down all her friends. In a barren, blasted dreamscape, Rose is left with Dream who tells her that she must sacrifice herself to save her friends, her brother, and her world. Death might not be so bad, though. Like any who die in the dreaming, she is welcome to remain there. But she is not alone in dreaming influential dreams. Unity, her great-grandmother, dreams herself into Lucienne's library, where she seeks to know the life she might have lived had she not slept most of her years away. As Dream prepares to kill Rose, Gilbert arrives. You were the best thing about being human, says Gilbert. After your death, if you do stay in the dreaming, then visit me. Walk in my meadows and my green glades. 
rest beneath my trees. Unable to save Rose, he gives her the gift of a possible reason for her existence. Perhaps the vortex is a symbol of how humanity is the center and root of the dreaming, and a reminder that the dreaming exists to serve humanity. Then he returns to his dream state as Fiddler's Green, a sylvan oasis of green and growing things. Just as Morpheus seems about to kill Rose, Unity interrupts. She should have been the Vortex, had she not gone into a coma. She reveals that the father of her child had golden eyes, tipping us off that she was tupped by one of the Endless with some questionable consent. Then she sasses Morpheus and tells Rose to reach inside herself and give whatever it is that makes her the Vortex. It's the dreaming, she reminds her granddaughter, and anything is possible. Rose puts her hand inside her chest and removes a crystal heart. Unity takes the heart, and now she is the Vortex. In her room in the waking world, the old Unity dies and wakes inside the dreaming. Now Rose is free to go and resume her life. Back with her friends, Rose and Jed move back to New York with Hal accompanying them. He will sell his house to Zelda and Chantal. Barbie and Ken seem destined for a breakup, but Lyda, happy with her infant son, seems ready to move on. Some months later, Rose writes a book and sends it off to be submitted to a publisher, and it appears in Lucienne's library. Less happily, Dream and Desire also have a reunion of sorts. Dream walks through a gallery and picks up a crystal heart, Desire's sigil, which we have seen before in the scene where Rose pulls it out of her chest. Morpheus walks into his sister-brother's realm and confronts them. Desire impregnated Unity all those decades ago, which meant that this was a long con, and if Dream had been forced to kill Rose, he would have killed a family member, which is one of the constraints which binds the Endless. Desire, catsuit tail lashing about, is not chastened. Back in the dreaming, Morpheus is busy creating new dreams and nightmares, including a brand new version of Galt, butterfly-winged, a dark and glorious beauty of a dream. He has learned to allow his projects to direct him, it seems. Morpheus is not ready to reinvent his Corinthian, however. He hands over the skull to Lucienne's keeping, also entrusting her to run things as he focuses on his newest nightmare, Broken Face Crockery Man. But Morpheus will not have long to work on his new creation. Politics in Hell is forcing Lucifer's hand, and the Lightbringer will have to appease the expansionist high-ranking demons chafing to expand Hell. That's all right. The Platinum Blonde's red silk dressing gown Fallen Angel has a plan that will offend God and bring Morpheus to his knees. Right, Elisa. I have to say, um, every every week your uh, summaries, whenever you do them, always delight me. But broken face crockery man is like one of my favorite things ever, um, and I'm very excited. To hopefully, see that character come to life someday. Here we are talking about the kind of finale. We sort of have a coda for next week with the uh, Dream of a Thousand Cats and Calliope. Um, but this is the end of these storylines um, at this point, and I have to say like my first impression when well the first time I watched this episode I was just like oh my god I love it I love it because there's lots to love here from a story structure perspective like all of the different storylines, everything that's going on. I mean, we have this like major, you know, line of conflict with the Corinthian that's resolved in like the first five minutes of the episode. And then we spend the rest of the time just kind of like sewing up all of these different stories that we've got like running all over the place. And it just feels like five stories in a trench coat, you know, all of them like <laughs> fighting to see who's getting the attention now. Um, but, you know, I mean, like the thing is, that doesn't mean it's not it's not good or well done. I honestly have no idea if I had been in charge of this, these stories and had to remain faithful, if not to the letter, to the spirit of everything that was going on in the comics, which I think that they did. I think that it's just one of those things where you're like, all right, fine. It's got to be, it's got to be like putting socks on an octopus. It's just that's the way it's going to be. Right. <laughs> oh you know? my so God. Like, you're so and, brilliant. And that's fine. That's fine. Like it was still like, it's fun. It's enjoyable. It's interesting. Um, and unless I know how I would have fixed it, given that challenge, I just need to shut up. What was your overall response about it? You know, I don't, first of all, I really enjoyed it. I think mm -hmm. it, 
managed to not only wrap up the character arcs, but it wrapped up the philosophical questions that were raised. And I don't think it could have been done any better in this amount of real estate. That is to say, you know, sometimes you walk into somebody's apartment in New York City and you think, wow, this is the most efficient and a lovely use of space. Look, mm-hmm. the, the, they've got a floating shelf giving some more illusion of space. They put a loft bed in. I can't believe that that lamp does double duty as a coat stand, whatever, you know, whatever coat rack, you know, so everything has been cunningly Murphy bedded and, yes. um, and, 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 you know, Russian dolled into, into, what are those really called? Matrushka dolls? Anyway. Matrushka dolls. Matrushka yeah. dolls. It's been matrushkaed brilliantly. I think that's it, yeah. Uh, those are those Russian dolls where one yes. little wooden doll nests one inside of another inside and another and another. And mostly, yes. Mm-hmm. But the only thing that I think could have, you know, added to my pleasure is giving it a little more more time to breathe because there were so mm-hmm. many there were so many uh plot strands, as you said, so many, yeah. uh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, character arcs, so, you know, that it it felt wonderfully fast paced, but also it made me a little nostalgic for the days when people meandered. And I was, this is, this is sort of a little off topic, but I was thinking, I know our attention spans have gotten shorter because I've been rereading some older books. And, you know, in older romances, not only do the hero and heroine or you know, back then it was always the hero and heroine. They they didn't meet each other in the first page or the first chapter. People were mm-hmm. going off and living their convoluted lives, having sex with other people and doing all kinds of things. And then eventually they met and it wasn't as tight. And so you lost that tightness. But what you got was a little bit more of the sense of this is like life. And you couldn't always see where how everything was going to click, click, click mm-hmm. into place. So, I again, I don't argue with this for being what it is—a creature of 2022 when everyone has mm-hmm. the attention span of a gnat. And uh, but I, you know, there are so many things that you could have added just a little bit of water to and had dinners for weeks. Well, you know, yeah, with a little more real estate, they might have been able to kind of let things breathe a little bit more. That said, I it's my strong conviction that you can tell your story walking and still have space to to get in that feel of of here is life. But like your story needs to be moving. So for me, myself personally, I, well, I appreciate the, the old way things were done where we just meandered around and then finally about page 50 got started. Um, I like when a story hits the ground running. I like when a story happens and um, and knows what it's doing and pursues that thing. And it can while in pursuit of that thing. And having come from a comics background, as you do, like you understand better than anybody, the Murphy bed of storytelling <laughs> that is comics, right? You know, yes. That there is so much, nothing does just one job, you know, and that is such a beautiful efficiency that speaks to my my particular, like, story heart. Um, so that said, like, all of that said, yes, you know, it's 10 cats in a trench coat. Yes, there's a lot of things going on. Um, but every little individual thing, like, I really enjoyed, like, I enjoyed the ending of the... Um, uh, of the the Corinthian story. I love the little tiny, uh, you know how many people are 3D printing that little tiny toothy eyeball skull right now so it can sit on their desk? Like that is a merchandising opportunity. Hopefully somebody's already on that and is producing them so you can buy them. I will absolutely get one for my desk. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, it's so so much happening. And sometimes I think, okay, well, let's talk about this, but then there's this, but then there's that. Um, Let's go ahead and start as we usually... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just suddenly thought that a a really great marketing thing would be Corinthian cereal. Each little nugget, like Captain Crunch, (laughs) would be a little skull with teeth eyes. One of those little skulls. 
pickles. Yes. Oh my god! Get it? Cereal. Get on that. It, the cereal. <laughs> no, I get it. I think that would be wonderful. I love that idea. That's brilliant. Um, all right, so let's start as we often do with the visuals from this episode, which I think are pretty stunning. Yes, I mean there there's a lot of beautiful stuff and and a lot of just nice framing of shots. I noticed yeah. that when we visit uh, Unity, we are seeing her initially through one of the windows in that dollhouse mm-hmm. of hers, mm-hmm. and yeah. I I just thought that was lovely, and um, you know it was it, it may not have been subtle, but I don't need subtle. It was it was beautifully done. Um, yeah. and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the, obviously the, the CGI of, in general, I feel that CGI I like as a garnish rather than as a main course, mm-hmm. but yeah. you know, the Fiddler's Green, um, turning from person into place, I will, that is one place where, you know, you can give me all the parsley. I, I like it. Oh my God. I absolutely loved that. Um, Galt also like the design of Galt is one of my favorite things. I absolutely love everything about this character. And then to see Galt with that, I mean, the beautiful effects they did on her skin and her hair and the, the, um, the fairy wings that they gave her as she, you know, was, was a floating universe flying into the sky. It was so incredibly beautiful. And, you know, Gilbert, turning into Fiddler's Green with all of the green and the flowers and the florals. And, you know, usually when you see someone like disintegrate piece by piece, it is part of the horror, you know, but here it is this beautiful kind of re-becoming, right? Like he had to leave himself for a while in order to understand himself and then was able to become himself again, you know? Um, And there's something about that that, again, like, yeah, we didn't have a whole lot of time you know, for Gilbert and Fiddler's Green. Um, But what time we had, I think, was really beautifully spent. And I absolutely loved just the the way that his becoming was visualized. It was so beautiful. And, you know, I think symbolically, the fact that Galt, who's our new character, becomes good, becomes uh, a dream without losing any aspect of her gorgeous blackness and her her universeness you know she's her design is really not that different so just like it, it's kind of that by awarding her wings i don't think he so much recreated her as he gave her wings which reminds me of the thumbelina story um where at the end doesn't she get wings so she can become a flower fairy like the other flower fairies yeah I, yeah i think so um the thing that's beautiful about that um and that i really love is that i think she was always good yes she was always yes. good but I, she was trapped in a nightmare existence right well, that she evolved I, she may not have always been good i think that like gregory the gargoyle she started out as a nightmare and then she right. evolved and i think the thing i would posit that he didn't remake her in some different form unlike the corinthian he he really brought her back and then gifted her the wings as an acknowledgement uh, rather than and to now let her be a, fully a, herself. Yeah, yeah. So I yeah. and I think that you know there's a lot of writing metaphors in so much of Neil's writing, but this idea of letting your characters evolve from that first conception you had of yep. them and not forcing mm-hmm. them to stay in the box that you initially thought they should be in, that mm-hmm. that feels very real. He, you know, Morpheus is learning how to be a more organic writer of his creations. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. And I hadn't really thought about it until just now. So uh, as I say this, please understand, I have I have not thought this out at all, but it feels to me like there may be something of a trans narrative in there as well, <gasps> in that who who someone really is, you know, and and trying to find a place where they can express who they really are and then becoming again. And this is, it does feel like we have Gilbert becoming or re-becoming, you know, we have Galt becoming, right? We have Corinthian becoming dust, which is what he needs to be for now, you know. Um, there's a lot of, of that, this kind of transitional um expression of of who people are you know that i think is is really interesting unity becoming you know the vortex for a hot second and then dying right um you know rose unbecoming 
the vortex of becoming like a regular person and a writer, right? So we see like so much of this um, realization and understanding of of self so that this is really like the becoming narrative. Um, here we have, though, like not to oh, wait, can take I- a metaphor. Before you go, go I wanted to say, you know, I was thinking about how some people talk about creation of of the kind that Rodin as a sculptor did as seeing the shape that the stone wants to be, releasing that shape rather than imposing it. And so I, I, I think you're right that everybody kind of gets released into into their truer form. So sorry, I Into love their that. True form. Yeah, sorry. Go yeah. back no, to what you I'm were sorry. saying. I'm so I'm following my script so tightly that I sometimes <laughs> just ramble on and don't leave space well, for you to speak. I, I'm going to work on that. Well, no, no. It's it's just sometimes you you spark thoughts for me that I have not had in the you know. It's <laughs> when we're dancing. I, I yes, it's different in the in the reality. But you pointed out you you started to go through. I mean, this is. This is like those moment if we were sports announcers, we're like, all right, Lonnie, that was an incredible. Let's talk about the number of different plot threads that were tied up there. <laughs> Interesting strategy. Let's see how that works out for him, Cotton. Uh, it's a deep cut dodgeball reference for anybody out there who is unaware. Um, but yeah, I, what I was what I was going to hop to was this uh, this trench coat narrative and trying to find a way of not being gross when I say let's open the trench coat and take a look at all of these stories that are inside. Um, so you know, we come off of last week's cliffhanger with the Corinthian fighting against Dream to stay alive. Then it's Rose and Jed rushing to the hospital with Lyda. Lyda's baby being born. Everybody being there. Then. Dream needs to kill Rose, then it's Gilbert offering himself to save Rose, but instead wait, wait, wait. becoming you, Fiddler's Green. Can, can hmm? you read this completely like a newscaster? I think I think you just need to say this like Howard Cosell. Like a newscaster. <laughs> yeah, no, you've done it. Like, just, can you, I, I want to hear it as Howard and, Cosell. Do you want me to, I don't know if I could do newscaster voice. I mean, totally I can, can. sometimes. Just kind of but... go New York, go faster. It's this, is that, this, it. you know, just, yeah. <laughs> All right. Then it's Gilbert offering himself to save Rose, but instead re-becoming Fiddler's Green. Then it's Unity Kincaid sacrificing herself to save Rose. Then it's Dream confronting Desire. Then it's Dream completing his character arc and making Galt a dream. Then it's the Lucifer Coda. It's a lot. It's like putting socks on an octopus, like I said. But overall, so how was that for my uh, <laughs> my broadcaster voice? Oh, it's great. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, Jack, don't even try to edit all that. Just leave the mess in. It's fine. Um <laughs> People want to see what it's like behind the scenes. That's what it's like. It's like, do a newscaster voice. Okay. Um, But I think overall, getting back to the story, getting back to the trench coat, is that we've got all of these things happening. We've got all of this, you know, like story, 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 wrap up, you know, all of these things. Um, And then it's, it's good. I'm enjoying everything. But in a moment, I'm like, oh, my God, you know, we're we're popping to hell for Lucifer after we've gone and threatened destiny. And it's just there's so much stuff going on. Uh, But I think that the first thing that I really want to talk about, especially because like you, you know, having knowledge of all of this stuff, um, you know, here we have this moment where Dream is realizing that that Rose is the progeny of desire. And he turns to Rose and he says, you and your brother are the children of the endless. You've suffered enough. Now, here is this moment in which, like, clearly there is a huge significance to the fact that desire is actually Rose's, like, great-grandfather, you know? Um, It's a big deal. I don't entirely understand... Like, why it's a big deal. I know in the comics, when we talked about this, there was this thing that, like, if Dream had killed, like, one of the endless family, that there would be repercussions for that. But I was never quite sure what that was about. Okay, so it has to do with Greek mythology, that mm-hmm. this is what the Furies get you for. This is what, you know, this is what screwed Oedipus up. I mean, there were so okay. many things, but uh, it's, a lot it's, of things. The, yeah. It's the spilling of family blood. It's it's that taboo mm-hmm. that will, uh, I believe, sick the furies on you. This is not something I've looked up in a long while. That is my memory <laughs> of of that this that Neil um, grafted this ancient Greek mythology, you know. Or, or not grafted so much, but you know, incorporated it into right. his mm-hmm. his universe. Um, here is a place where I do like messiness. I was thinking about the fact that in the original, Morpheus looks like he's about to 
destroy Rose with a kiss, which is uh-huh. even kind of weirder when we realize that he's about at that point, you know, he doesn't know. So he's about to mm-hmm. give a romantic kiss to someone who's a great, great grandniece or something. Great niece or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Although mm-hmm. God, in some cultures, you know, that's still viable bride. <laughs> but um, <laughs> and, and I, I, when I say some cultures, I'm going to reveal that my grandfather's parents were first cousins. I think there was a lot of inbreeding, <laughs> which explains the level of nearsightedness in my family, <laughs> among other things. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, and I liked the messiness of this. I, um, I was thinking about the whole weird Luke Leia kiss right that is clearly mm-hmm. romantic and then they yes. kind of try and veer a different and then way they retcon it yes mm-hmm. but i like some of that weird uncomfortable mess back to the future which is i think a, a truly brilliant piece of writing is fueled by incest anxiety it is so <laughs> i mean if nobody talks about how mm-hmm racy it is i mean throughout mm-hmm. um what's the kid's name Mar- is it marty or that's he's marty not the- mcfly so marty mm-hmm. mcfly goes back in time and his teenage mother clearly thinks he's hotter than his dad and mm-hmm. the discomfort and squirminess of that gives you a lot of mileage so this is i think a little for me i like a squirmy cringe and i i kind of miss having lost it <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. (laughs) But let's keep going. Let's keep Um, going. All right. So one of the things, though, I mean, that I liked a lot is that we have Rose, you know, in this dream, actually pulling Desire's sigil, that crystal heart, from her chest, handing it to Unity. Unity takes it in, then she's dead. Now she's hanging out in the dreaming, right? Um, and uh, and then we see it's the golden eyes thing, though, that catches Dream's attention. Not the fact that it's actually Desire's sigil inside of Rose, but that the the man that Unity had this baby with in her dreams was um, was golden eyed, <laughs> hey, right? Hey, you put your sigil in my vortex. <laughs> God, this this episode of Endless is just getting dirty. We may need like an, an I, age. I was thinking uh, of Reese's peanut butter cup, but okay. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Sigil and vortex. I just went right there. But anyway, so um, so we have all of the dreams and attraction. I just I can't. I'm trying to like turn the car out of this skid, um, and I'm doing the best sorry. I can. Um, so let's talk a little bit about dream confronting desire. Um, because first of all, desire... Okay, here's my thing with desire. Like, I realize that desire basically raped unity, although we don't really talk about that um, as that. Because in her dreams, when she's experiencing it, it does seem that she, it was a very consensual thing. And we are endless... There are, you know, ways to get inside the dream and live the experience inside the dream. And Lyda also conceived in a dream with consent. So we're just going to let that float, right? We're just going to let well, that I, I be what it is. I think we should take a moment because I did say I mm-hmm. think it's questionable consent because anytime you are stripping someone under false pretenses, you know, that is questionable yeah. consent. I mean, there's yeah. that, uh, you know, in romance, there's always the, I, I've lost my memory. I love her. I want to kiss her. But what if I'm married and have 16 children or I'm a sniper? <laughs> um, you know, so, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a thing. And so clearly, if you if you aren't being honest about yourself, then that's questionable. I don't... If you lie, I mean, you know, there is there is rape by deceit is actually becoming something. There are places that do have laws about that sort of thing, that if you are lying to someone and they would not have slept with you had they known the truth, that there is, that is a sexual violation, definitely. Oh, this actually reminds me. So I was listening to Mm -hmm. a David Sedaris book and I heard the one joke that, uh, this is really crude, but I've been telling it to everyone because it's, it's, it's amused me a lot. (laughs) What's, can I say a dirty joke? 
Oh, uh, now after we've been opening <laughs> trench coats and talking about incest, yes, of course. Okay, so this this yet. ties yeah. into questionable consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the joke is, what's the worst thing that you can hear while going down on Willie Nelson? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm not Willie Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> That is, yes, that is questionable consent. Yes. So here we have, steering out of the skid, here we have back into uh, into dream and desire and desire and, and what happened with unity is that we do have, this is a world in which, you know, we have a dream space that very much exists, you know, there are real experiences happening there. And if desire in the same way that Hector impregnated Lyda in the dreaming, if desire was in the dreaming with unity and had consent in that space, but then she became pregnant in the real world. I still think, I still think, yeah, no, because, because she doesn't know that, that they are desire. She doesn't know that they are the endless. She doesn't know who this person is and who desire has pretended to be is not who they fully are. Also, consent is really impossible. So I just made my own argument that it is absolutely. Yes. Well, Mm -hmm. okay. So I think I'll give another argument for that. And then I'm going to give Mm my um, gray area. Yeah. Uh, talk. So, because I, I think it falls into a gray area. There's another problem. Unity mm-hmm. was last fully herself at age 12. <laughs> and maybe uh-huh. she is yes. maturing and living a life in the dreaming. But I'm a little confused about, you know, has she, you know, did she get sex counseling in the dreaming? Has she really grown up? Or is she, to some extent, a 12 year old? And did she age in her dreams? Yeah. Right. Did, she, did mm-hmm. she gain the experiences she needed? Because even if she aged, in her dreams, which I, I got the feeling mm-hmm. she did. Um, yeah. You know, you think about in the real life analog is these people who are, you know, kind of held prisoner somewhere and they, they don't get the education mm-hmm. or the exposure to the real world. And so yeah. they are not fully able to make informed decisions. So that's mm-hmm. the real world analog. But here's where I think there, there sh- should be... Ha- in fantasy and in writing, I think that there mm-hmm. are these gray areas because there are different kinds of metaphors. And sometimes yes. I think mm-hmm. that to, to simply say, you know, to say dubious consent or problematic is one thing, but to call everything rape sometimes mm-hmm. feels to me like it takes away from the nuance of this because it was mm-hmm. it was a manipulation and a seduction. And I don't, you know, I don't get the feeling that dis- – I mean, desire by their very nature makes you want them. And mm-hmm. so, right. it's, you know, so in that um, and, and here again, if I go into the real world analog of that, it definitely does fall under rape if a person can't consent. I, if a person is sleeping. If, if a person is sleeping, no, no, but even if the like, person yes. just isn't, you know, cannot consent, cannot right. consent. Mm-hmm. I yes. think mm-hmm. that this we are in a different realm where there's an alternate mm-hmm. reality here. And the same with Hector. I don't think Hector yeah. knew that he could, you know, dream and pregnate Lida. I no, but that was also very consensual, you know, and would have been in the real world if if Hector was around. It, yeah, it was a know? folly. So, I, mean, that's, I mean, it yeah. was that whole mm-hmm. idea of these two people had created this. Mm-hmm. mad yeah. alternate reality that they were going to mm-hmm. live in together. Right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the thing is, Desire is not a moral person. So I think last week I did talk a little bit about that whole Ted Lasso mm-hmm. episode where really for him to be a good lover, I thought he needed to have a little more connection why have I lost the ability to say the word connection? Connection with his own desire. And desire mm-hmm. is not by its nature moral mm-hmm. or, you know, <laughs> generous. That that stuff can attend it. But there's something a little amoral and, um, and grasping 
and refusing and to ravenous. Yes, and and refusing right? to accept yeah. boundaries. So it makes mm-hmm. sense that our desire of the endless should not be nice. Right. Our desire of the endless should not be nice. Yes. But textually, I feel like there's there's an acknowledgement there that I'm looking for uh, just to make sure that I'm not mm. crazy. At the same time, Dream does go to take a chunk out of Desire's beautifully cattailed ass. Like Dream <laughs> goes in there and Dream is like, I'm not putting up with any of your bullshit. And one of the things that I, I really like, especially as you talk about Desire being the place where rules don't exist, right? There are no rules, right? You're playing by Desire's game. And when you you're in Desire's game, you do what Desire wants. Now, we have Dream, who we see and has gotten into trouble, you know, giving into Desire before, although we'll get into that in a little more detail as we move forward in the story. Um, and so there's this one point, though, with Corinthian, where Dream says, if I didn't follow my rules, this this whole experience would consume me. Like I would be mm. consumed by that, right? The way that you are consumed by desire. Um, so I find it really interesting that dream, you know, dream is like me, death, destiny will kick your ass, you know? <laughs> yes. And desire's like gonna be what it's gonna be, cupcake, you know? <laughs> like desire <laughs> does not care about consequence. Desire is all about doing what you want in that moment, which I think is so interesting. And those rules, I think, like the next thing, of course, that we want to see is dream giving in to desire again and seeing how maybe he can balance between those his his very, very strict rules. <gasps> yes. And the desire. And, yeah. And, you know, another thing that's interesting, I mean, I love all the different dreams and mm-hmm. um I mean, when we look at Barbie and Ken's dream, I think really the greater transgression with Ken isn't that he has uh, a an unfaithful dream in which, you know, this yeah. woman's going down on him in the car. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, first of all, the banality and the... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and just the, the boringness of his dream world as compared to mm-hmm. hers. And then also, yeah. if you've ever read John Irving or Neil Gaiman, American Gods, mm-hmm. you know why. I mean, especially if the car is moving, that is a bad, <laughs> bad idea. That is a bad idea. The world according to Garp. Yeah, I haven't thought about that in a really long time. I read that way too young. But um, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> um, I think we're going to yeah, have to so, put a label on this podcast. I, we <laughs> may have to. We're going into all of these these different areas. But it, the, see, that's the thing. It's, you know, 10 podcasts in a trench coat right now because we're <laughs> hopping around from all of these different ideas. Uh, so, you know, back to dream and desire. Like, I really liked that. I liked the, that dream has those rules. And then, of course, we see see, you know, the character arc of Dream at the end, where he is starting to bend some of his rules that a nightmare must always be a nightmare. And then that's when he frees Galt, which, you know, I mean, not to, you know, give away my hand or anything. Clearly, I've been talking, I've been waiting to talk about this from the beginning. I loved it so much um, that when Galt becomes this dream and we see her truly becoming herself, um, it's just so wonderful. But it happens because Dream is able to drop those rules. Yeah, fine. Where's Gregory? Where's Gregory? Where is Gregory? He was a nightmare. He was a nightmare that became a dream. He gets, you know, sauced in the first uh, episode. Yeah, Yeah, come on. I mean, do we have to, like, have Broken Face Crockery Man come before Gregory? I I don't know. Maybe Broken Face Crockery Man is the next evolution of Gregory. Fair. That's as bad as that's as bad as when the beast becomes some, you know, pasty-faced prince. I know, really. Who needs that, right? Um, all right. So one other thing though that kind of threw me off, and this is just a brief moment, because I'm wondering if maybe I'm missing something. But did it seem weird to you that like in the hospital with Lida, we've got this new baby, Rose is holding the baby, everybody there is happy. And Jed quotes the Corinthian. I I loved it because I think, I don't think the Corinthian ever did anything bad to Jed. In fact, he rescued him. And I think that the most interesting villains aren't entirely wrong or mistaken. And I love the fact that the Corinthian says true things. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's. I I love that people use 
you know, yes, I think people tend to use your full name when you're in the most trouble. But yeah, it's that's uh, very true. That's very true. Well, here's the thing. Yes. One of the things I love about the Corinthian is that he does say true things. And yes, you can argue that he did not harm uh, Jed or Rose. So there is that. However, Jed, this poor traumatized kid, did witness the Corinthian like very much unaliving someone, you know, in progress. <laughs> like, you know, and I just don't like the, the the heartwarming quoting of the Corinthian in this moment felt so tonally weird to me. I mean, I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm saying maybe I don't get it. Why? Because it's obviously clearly a clear choice. But I'm I think I'm missing why that works. <laughs> I think it works because it is a little acknowledgement um, of the dark within the light. That mm-hmm. that is, you know, that even in light moments, we we need to sometimes have that little acknowledgement of the dark mm-hmm. and the truth that the dark provides. And okay. I, I think Jed's not as damaged psychologically as he should have been because Galt preserved him. He was a hero yeah. in his dreams and he had great agency in his dreams. And when your dreams are that vivid and productive, you know, it, it kept a lot of his psyche intact, I think. I love that. I love that read. I'm still not sure about that line being used is so like in this happy family moment. But you know what? what? One of these days I'll watch it and maybe I'll get it. Maybe I'll understand it then. Um, the other thing, can we talk for a minute about Gwendolyn Christie? killing it as Lucifer oh, and, in the end. And is she not in some ways like a dark satanic Doris Day? Oh, oh my God. She's amazing. <laughs> I love everything about her. I love the little curls of hair going in two opposite directions on her forehead. I love you know, Mazikeen in there. Mazikeen is amazing. Um, the, the whole we're going to, we are going to, you know, fuck everyone up. Lucifer is mad at God. Lucifer is mad at Dream. Gonna use one stone to just knock them all down. Um, And I love the promise of season two. As of this recording, we have not gotten a season two announcement. But I feel like this, I mean, this is a coda. This is a clear nod to where we're going with the story next. Um, And it's this wonderful, like, how does Gwendolyn Christie smile and seethe at the same time in such a beautiful way that doesn't feel like she's pulling in two different directions? I mean, like, it's it's just amazing. Yes. And it's because, I mean, I'm saying the Doris Day thing because Doris Day was this blonde, wholesome, charismatic actor. And I think... Gwendolyn Christie is as well. There's this sort of, mm-hmm. you know, sturdiness to her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my dogs are like tossing and turning like demons in the pit. Um, but it, at the same time, you know, she absolutely delivers sinister. Oh, Absolutely. And I think it's a wonderful note on which to like end the season, at least this part of the season, we're going to get a second, third, two more codas coming in or short stories that we're going to be spending some time with as we go into uh, next week with um, Dream of a Thousand Cats and uh, and Calliope. Uh, But I think that's a good note to end this particular story on. It's a good note to end this block on so that you can go and attend to your dogs and we'll be back in a minute with Lucian's Library. If you're enjoying Endless, a Sandman podcast, then you should know that it is only through our Patreon supporters that we are able to produce this content for you. So we'd like to take this moment to thank everyone who supports us at patreon.com slash chipperish this episode of endless was brought to you by the chipperish patrons who support us on patreon at the power producer level thank you to our power producers alice christina erica jane kevin Kristen, michael rose sarah shelley Stephania and Stephanie. All Chipperish supporters get access to the Chipperish Discord chat where you can pop in, meet other Sandman fans, and chat with the Chipperish creators. And at $10 a month and up, you can even attend live tapings for some of our shows. Thank you to our intrepid editor, Jack Cram, whose time and skill is paid for through your support. If you'd like to support Endless and Chipperish Media, please visit patreon.com slash chipperish and support us today. Okay, I have... Taking my dogs outside so that we can enter (laughs) Lucien's library.
Oh my God, I love it so much. This, of course, Lucian's Library is where we have themes, behind the scenes stuff, and possibly light spoilers. So, you know, be careful um, as you wander through and uh, listen to us read the spines of the books here. I'm just walking with the metaphor. You go ahead. <laughs> um, okay, so the first thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is horror heat levels because Ooh. I was watching this and at the same time I made uh, the mistake of giving in to my curiosity and watching the beginning of the Netflix Dahmer mm-hmm. uh, series, which is very well done oh, yeah. and just was a little too disturbing for where I'm at right now. But it got me thinking about horror and if horror were like salsa, you know, how mm-hmm. I could describe <laughs> heat levels. And mm-hmm. I think that for me, this is my own personal salsa horror rating. When horror is mild, only the bad get killed. And it can be as gory and as dark as you like, um, but as long as only the bad are killed, it's still a pretty mild flavor. And even kids like a, you know that kind of horror. Horror medium is where the bad and also some good people, but you don't know them well. Mm-hmm. That's that's medium, and I can do mm-hmm. a lot of horror medium and and mild. Hot horror is good people that you know fictionally die. You've spent some time with Mm -hmm. them. You care about them. And then we get into the extra hot where your POV character dies a true death, meaning they don't then just reappear strolling around some alternate reality. They are wandering through the dreaming, picking flowers. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by that criteria, which I've just made up, (laughs) uh, this is definitely (laughs) horror, you know, mild to medium. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about that because you don't think of serial killer horror as, as, you know, as being mild to medium. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, it, in a way, just the fact of it being serial killers makes it hotter because Mm -hmm. we, you know, every horror is a, is a response to what people found awful and, you know, to, to express the darkness of, of a time. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, you – horror got – began to get, I think, realer after World War One. You had a mm-hmm. lot of uh, – a response to all of this incredible death. And then there was this whole resurgence of horror after World War Two and the atomic bomb. That, you know, so we, we had all of these different metaphors going. Serial killers was um, – I would say a, a big, big horror theme in the 80s. It was also a mm-hmm. time when there were more serial killings. I'm not sure mm-hmm. why there are fewer serial killings now, except maybe I've heard it, uh, you know, because I, I did a little digging around and maybe because of social media and the fact that it's harder to disappear. Uh, I think that, you know, it, it's God, there was this case in Poughkeepsie where somebody kept, okay, this is this is a complete side story, but somebody was killing people and walling them up in the walls of the house. Yikes. And my yeah. daughter, this was in Poughkeepsie, my daughter went to school with someone who ended up living in that house. And damn. Yeah, you'd think that they would have just gotten rid of that house. And it was it was funny because Ellie didn't want to go to that house and the girl couldn't come to Ellie's house because she was allergic to cats. So they could only hang oh, out at, at school. But anyway, yeah. I don't there seem to be fewer cases like that. And I think it's because mm-hmm. when people go missing, they are more, you know, easily tracked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But as a monster theme, I think that we're coming back to serial killers right now. And there's some way in which this is a horrible time in so many different ways. Yeah. And ser- mm-hmm. serial killers as monsters, fictional monsters, mm-hmm. feel very real. There isn't that pattern of the supernatural taking them, you know, taking them away from, from making us feel safe that there aren't really monsters of, of this sort. And in this sense, just having the Corinthian feels like a bomb, feels easier because, okay, mm-hmm. so the reason we have serial killers is because we have this rogue nightmare. The reason that right, we have- who inspired the law. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and so then we get the lift at the end of 
dream giving a punishment that really feels like a fitting punishment. You know, nothing can bring back the victims. But whereas I started to watch Dahmer and I thought, I know this story. I can't see it dramatized because... um, it's not the goriness that gets to me because I can handle a lot of body horror. Mm-hmm. It's it's the moral outrage that you feel that there's no way that he can really pay for those crimes. You can't. You can't. There's nothing you can do unless there was something where, you know, where the the vengeance that we go after uh, would bring back the victims or would would untraumatize the victims. You know, um, all of those things cannot be undone. Um, I love the punishment that Dream gives them because it does feel so apt and so appropriate, you know, um, and we see, you know, like the the woman, the good doctor calls calling uh, the police and turning yourself in. We see the other guy, I can't remember <laughs> which serial killer it was, actually like shoot himself, you know, um, in his car. Um, you know, we see them, we hear, you know, Dream saying, you are going to understand, you are going to know what you've done, you are going to feel the pain and the grief you know, from the families of your victims who will never be able to see their loved ones again. You're going to feel all of that. And that, I think, is um, is so incredibly poetic and absolutely appropriate. Um, and one of those things, too, that like if you've ever been the victim of anything, God willing, and the creek don't rise, none of us will be victim of anything that terrible. Or anybody Spit that three we, times we over know. my left shoulder. Spit three times over the left shoulder. Um, but when you have been like deeply harmed by someone, the idea that they could understand what they've done you know but the people who do like really deep terrible harm are not the kind of people who can understand what they're doing or care so there is something about this idea of somebody being able to like I had a book once where I had like a a sociopathic killer and the way that my um, my lead character you know beat them was by magically returning their empathy to them. Mm. And to see somebody who is is sociopathic like that, having that empathy returned to them and what it would do to them, you know, um, that to me was a lot of fun to write because it felt like this is what you need that you can never get from somebody who does these truly terrible things. Um, because if they had that capability within them, they wouldn't do those things, you know? Um, so I think that it's, it's, it's a really interesting kind of thing to talk about these. I, I, I love, you know, Quitney's theory of horror like, uh, you know, coming up here, um, the, the hot, the media, I, you know, to me, like the body, horror, like I, I, I'm not good with body horror. I don't like seeing people hurt in any circumstances, whether I know them or not. Um, you know, but it, it is, there is something about the rehumanizing. And again, like I'm, I'm, I didn't think about this clearly before I started. I did. This isn't in my notes. All of the becoming and the rebecoming and the, the reintegration of self that we're seeing thematically run through all of these stories. Um, you know, here we are with all of these serial killers who, you know, when if you think about it in terms of this nightmare came down when the dreaming was all a mess yeah. and in affected all of these people and they did these things that they would not have done and they become victims as well like everybody's a victim here you know everybody is and for them to realize what they've done and kind of have to come to grips with that it's a really powerful story it's like angel on buffy you know it's like it's a really powerful story and part of us wants that we want to see somebody who understands what they've done yes and you know, for me, even though, as you say, socks on an octopus or 10 cats mm-hmm. and a five cats in a trench coat, <laughs> because there's just such a strong visceral emotional core to this, I think it really works well for me. And I, I would say that, you know, romance and horror are both really visceral genres. They, yeah. they mm-hmm. only work if they 
grab you by the kishkas. And I think this works in a way both as horror and as romance because it takes Mm -hmm. us to dark places. We get to see some images that really are horrific, um, including someone who seems to be operated on without anesthesia, including, you know. While they're alive, yes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. body, that's vivisection, bodysuit stuff. But, um, but because you get real uplift at the end, mm-hmm. no matter you know if the serial killer does up the the spice level of of the horror, not the sexy spice, but the the yeah the burning <laughs> sensation spice. This is the uplift yeah. is you get a mango lassi, you know, to soothe your tongue mm-hmm. and and ease the burn and make you feel afterwards that all is well in your stomach. Well, absolutely, and that is you know an interesting metaphor that I can't take anywhere. <laughs> but I, what I am going to do <laughs> is go into like the the purpose of nightmares. Um, Dream says that he made the Corinthian to be a dark mirror made to reflect everything humanity will not confront. But this is the purpose of nightmares. And instead, the Corinthian goes in and infects humanity with what he is, right? Mm, you know, with the yes. way that he was made, um, that he is a nightmare made wrong. And when the, when Dream isn't there to keep him in line, you know, um, he goes out into the world and just, you know, wreaks all sort of havoc. Um, and so I found this like such an interesting idea that, you know, we have a nightmare, we wake up and we're horrified and we're scared or we're sad or like whatever, feeling all of those feelings in the middle of the night. It's truly, truly terrible. Um, but a lot of times, yeah, I think it is. It's, it's unconfronted fear you know, Mm -hmm. that ends up being personified in some kind of nightmare, you know, some kind of situation, um, some kind of monster, right? I mean, all of our monsters in our storytelling, they're all metaphor. They're all about the fears that we have difficulty confronting. Oh, God. And and as you're talking, I'm thinking maybe because the Corinthian didn't give nightmares to these serial killers, he inspired them to become like nightmares. Maybe yeah. that's maybe he was meant to help prevent them acting this out by letting them experience it in their dreams. Confront the darkness yeah. in the dreams, right? That this is the purpose of mm. this is why he's creating nightmares. This is why these nightmares need to exist. You know? And here we have two nightmares. We have Galt who is not aligned with that purpose, you know, that she was assigned. And then we have Corinthian, who is aligned, you know, with the actions that he's supposed to do, but again, not aligned with the purpose. So we see kind Mm. of these two nightmares reflecting again on each other. Oh, I love that. Okay. So I want to also talk about a place where I think there was a lack of darkness that I wanted to see. Um, yes. So I I was thinking about how in so many ways the serial killer convention is like a pun, you know, standing in for, <laughs> for writers and conventions. Mm-hmm. And yes. As if serial killers are dark mirrors of writers in this storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get all of I mean, there's so many ways in which the, the as I was joking in the summary, you know, you work alone, you don't get recognition, there's competitiveness, <laughs> there's the feeling that, you know, right. why am I not a bigger name or, oh, God, I'll mm-hmm. never be as efficient at taking out, you know, eyeballs as, yeah. um, and for eyeballs read, you know, I don't know, extraneous scenes. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> but Rose is an aspiring writer, and she mm-hmm. doesn't seem to have any of the weird mixture of hubris and insecurity that I think most writers I know possess. <laughs> it's I you know I um oh I don't know how to put this, but you know there's a way in which writers are not very nice people. They are often thinking to themselves, <laughs> very just when, dare you. Yes. Well, there's a side <laughs> of us that isn't nice because, you know, we could be having, yeah. you could be saying, oh my God, I can't believe what happened. A tree fell on my house and I, you know, I've lost everything. And I'm thinking, I can use this. I can use this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and we all, we all have this element that even yeah. when, you know, there's a little part of the brain that sits apart and says, Ah, oh, this is awful. Oh God, this is a terrible fight. I'll use this. And yeah. you know, we're we're part- I got the people in the walls house cranking in the back of my brain as we speak. Exactly. Yeah. We're you know, there's a, a scavenger-ishness. <laughs> mm-hmm. And 
you know, it's true, obviously, of horror and thriller writing, but to some extent, all writing, you know, domestic scenes of, of dismay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there there isn't any good writing without both observing from life and, and, and borrowing from it. And I just, mm-hmm. Rose is a little bland on... Mm-hmm. on this. You know, you know that she wants to write and writing there seems to be a stand-in for I want to do something creative. Mm-hmm. But I would have loved a moment of her, you know, thinking serial killers, I can use this. <laughs> and I guess well, I don't think do we get the sense do we do we know that she's a writer before yeah. she writes this book? Oh, okay, she tells I missed Hal. that entirely. Yeah, she tells oh, she tells Hal and yeah. Hal mm-hmm. is saying, you know, you know, his love for Broadway oh, is mm-hmm, like her mm-hmm, her desire right. to write. And, and you know, she does turn this into a story. Had there been enough space, I would have liked to have seen more of the writer in Rose. More of that yeah. little, um, she just seemed very young and not, you know, she does have her, her arc, but I didn't. I didn't get enough of a sense of what it would be like to experience anything filtered through her consciousness. You know, if she'd had clever quips or little observations Mm -hmm. or um, so that that was a little bit missing for me. Well, you know, I love that, too, because like, you know, we have this whole thing and I think we hit it harder in the comics than we do in the TV series. But this idea that the Morpheus King of Dreams is actually king of stories. Mm, like yes. it's the storytelling. And so you have Rose as a vortex, right? She would also be then a storyteller. And we see her put up walls and break down walls between other people's stories. But we don't see her telling their stories or controlling their stories. And I think that in the dream space, had she been doing that, we would have seen her writing evolve, you know. Um, but again, like that's it's such a time. There's so again, 10 cats in a trench coat. Like there's so much stuff going on there's here already. So there was barely enough real estate for the stuff that we did. Yeah, that would have been kind of awesome, but at the same time, like it, you know, it's it's okay. It's okay. There was definitely enough, enough packed into this, uh, into this story. And, you know, now moving <laughs> forward, I had a whole bunch of you like little random thoughts. Are you reading my random <laughs> oh thoughts? My so these, okay. So I have a part of the script that I usually like just stick like little random thoughts in and I don't, Sometimes I'll bring them in or I'll pull them in. When I'm, but this, I didn't pull, like, I think any of these in. But basically, uh, a couple of things. Um, so Dream says, I brought you into this world to serve humanity, not to feed upon it. And uh, for some reason, even though it's not within Dream's character, and I'm not actually suggesting, I think that they did it right. I felt like in that <laughs> moment, I wanted some kind of nickname there, like mouth eyes or tooth face. But I couldn't think of something really good for the Corinthian. Four teeth. <laughs> I like it. Um, Also, we see the Corinthian kind of tearing up there a little bit. Now, is that tears or is that drool? Like, where do we draw the line between the biology of the teeth eyes? I just want to say that the way you wrote it in your notes would be just like, you know, like, what is the sound of one hand clapping when the Corinthian (laughs) cries? Is it just drooling? Is it just drooling? It's really a philosophical question. I think that it doesn't need an answer so much as like you, everybody just needs to sit with that question for a little while and sort of ponder it. Um, you know, I like this without my rules, humanity would be consumed. Um, and then, you know, Corinthians says, or you might actually feel something. And the thing that I like is how that speaks to dreams arc mm. of being able to feel of being able to truly connect. I mean, you know, we've seen this entire season. Death has been like, hey, you're not connected with people come with me while people die and let's chat about it, you know, or, hey, you're not connecting with people. Come with me into this medieval tavern and let's have a beer about it, you know. Um, So I really like that we are keeping a, you know, strong tooth eye on um, on Dream's (laughs) character arc and how he's he's moving into this space where he can be more connected. Um, And, you know, like I have to say the look on Lucienne's face when Unity says the father of a baby was a golden-eyed man. Can we just talk about Lucianne for a little bit? Because, oh my God, Dream makes the connection and Lucianne's like, yeah, I, I was there 20 minutes ago. The like, look I on her face this. is a Tanya Tucker song. 
Oh my God. It's so, it's her patience with the shenanigans in the endless is like chef's kiss perfect. Like Lucienne is one of my favorite things. But now here we are at the part of the podcast where we talk about what is our favorite part of this episode. So Elisa, what is your favorite part of Lost Hearts? All right. I, I had a bunch. I had two runners (laughs) up and a winner. All -hmm. right. Second runner up, Unity and Lucienne in the library really enjoyable. I loved that Unity stays old in the comic. She mm-hmm. reverts to her younger state. So I love that she's mm-hmm. old and gets her yeah. moment. I do wish she'd gotten a little more glammed up for her big confrontation with Morpheus. But mm-hmm. uh, it is her dream. But I love that. Okay. First runner up, Barbara uh, Barbie and Martin Tenbones with Barbie spotting mm-hmm. Ken's stupid hot girl giving head in a car dream. Uh, and then my winner. I just loved Zelda saving Chantal, or oh, maybe it was Chantal yeah. saving. Zelda. Which is the little oh, girl? Yeah, I don't know. I got confused. I think I think I think Zelda's the little girl. Well, I'm not sure. Yeah. All I know is I love the scene. I love the idea that they so understood each other that one could get the other out of a stuck place. There is no greater gift of friendship either to Mm -hmm. someone psychologically or in a story to get them out of a stuck place. (laughs) Oh, can I also throw in, like, you know, can I have a runner-up, which is, is that a real spider? Used to be. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. By the way, it's so great. My my daughter uh, just keeps sending me videos of like her shooing tarantulas out of her Earthship in New Mexico. Oh my uh, god! Because it, it's 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 I think like tarantula mating season. Well, that's horrifying. So let's move on. Um, okay, so for anybody who had Lonnie talks about Galt five times in a single podcast on their bingo card, go ahead and get your markers out because my favorite part, of course, is Galt becoming Galt becoming the dream that she was always meant to be. Uh, there is nothing in this world as beautiful as Galt realizing herself. And I just I'm going to go and watch that scene on repeat over and over and over again because it is unbelievably beautiful. You've got a Galt crush. If you enjoyed this insane conversation and would like to join in, <laughs> connect with the show on Twitter. Follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, you're in charge now. You're the vortex. We'll be back next time with Dream of a Thousand Cats slash Calliope, episode 11 of Netflix's The Sandman Season 1. Until then, next time I make you, you will not be so flawed and petty, little dream. Dream.